the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This week's The Interview is brought to you by AndrewandTodd.com. AndrewandTodd.com are the world's best lenders for real estate. They are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. You can call them at 888-888-1172, 888-888-1172. And please do, no matter what your lending needs are, AndrewandTodd.com. And now welcome to this new edition of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Morning, Gordon. Evening, Grace. America, it's Hugh Hewitt. Special treat for you today. I am still in Venice, but I will be back from Italy in a couple of days. I pre-taped this before I left for Europe because I'm going to spend today talking with one of my favorite writers, and he should be one of your favorite writers as well, Daniel Silva, maybe the finest practitioner of the espionage novel at work in the United States or indeed the world today. His uh, series of books about Gabriel Alon are just uh, monumental bestsellers. The new one, Moscow Rules, probably on top of the New York uh, Times bestselling chart. I spoke with him, and we will devote today to the art and the craft that he's practiced for many years. Daniel Silva, welcome to the Hugh Hewitt Show. Hello, Mr. Hewitt. How are you? Uh, please call me Hugh. And by the way, thank you. You've given me countless hours of extraordinary enjoyment, and uh, I appreciate it very, very much. Well, that is the highest compliment, and uh, thank you for reading them. I'm glad you like them. I'm gonna. We got a lot of time. We got you know three hour program, an hour and forty minutes. So I want to set this up for our audience the first way by sort of introducing them to you a little bit and then going through the books and concluding with Moscow Rules. But I do really, when someone comes up to you and says, should I read Moscow Rules first, Daniel Silva, you say, nah, you, you really ought to go back to the kill artist and start there? Um, I don't, actually, because the, the books are, um, while they are a series, um, <clears throat> they do stand alone. Um, and so you can read Moscow Rules um and start there and then and then work your way through them in any order you like. I mean, is it do I wish that everyone started reading uh with the first book and went on this journey with me? Sure, but that's not the way it works and and I um really try very hard to make sure that each book does stand alone. I will say this about Moscow Rules, which I've now finished, courtesy of your publisher sending it out to me early. It really does stand alone. I, I think the other ones in the middle of the sort of Arab-Israeli stuff that we'll be talking about, a little bit harder to walk in from stage left or stage right. right. But Moscow Rules is, is so different from the other ones. Uh, right, and then I think I um, there was some of that was intentional. I mean, I, I look, I have wanted for a long, long time to try to figure out some way of writing about Russia like any – uh, espionage writer of my generation. We grew up, we're children of the Cold War. We grew up reading this stuff. Um, and I had been waiting and, and for a long, long time to try to get at the Russia story. Um, and uh, I was finally able to do it with this book. And so it is a, um, <clears throat> while the character is still the same character and the characters around him are still the same, it is a, um, a bit of a departure, and it, and probably end up going to end up being the first step of a journey uh, for me through the the, the Russia story. Yeah, it's phenomenally successful in that I thought it was over. I didn't think anyone could go back to Russia after Le Carre or Len Dayton and all that sort of stuff. But but here you are. You've introduced us to the new Russia of Putin in Moscow rules, and I I, I saw at the end of the book as well 
there's lots more ahead, uh, and I think, in fact, that genre may be as resurrected as the Cold War seems uh, to be. To judge from the number of Russia books that are coming out right now, um, I think that's probably <laughs> true. I, hear, I thought I was breaking a lot of new ground, and, and uh, I think there are two or three uh, thrillers that deal with Russia out this year. Um, and uh, I was interested to see... Uh, you know, get smart coming back. Yes. So there, there are, um, <clears throat> look, and, and I believe it's valid. I mean, uh, anyone who knows my work knows that I think seriously about the issues that I write about. Um, and I am, uh, I wouldn't quite use the word alarmed by what I see going on in Russia, but I am concerned about what I see going on in Russia. Um, uh, this is a, a, a power that, uh, that was denuded at the end of the Cold War, uh, had lost its empire, um, and it wants that empire back. Uh, it has seen the unipolar world uh, that uh, took shape after the Cold War, and it doesn't like that world. It wants it to be a bipolar world again. It wants to challenge us on the world stage. Um, and it is willing to play rough. Well, we just saw Medvedev uh, pushing back at Bush in Japan. Uh, of course, we're taping this on July the 9th, and it's airing when the book comes out in later July. But we just saw that. As I put down Moscow rules, here's Medvedev pushing back at Bush. And I thought, boy, this is timely. Um, well, he's Medvedev answers to a higher power. <laughs> yes, he does. Um, and... It was very interesting about a week before the G8 summit, um, and as an aside, I, I, I'm, I'm someone who thinks it should be the G7 again for a while until Russia changes its act, but uh, it's the G8 for now. Um, right before the G8 summit, the European uh, Union group of leaders had a little sit-down with Medvedev, and they remarked what a change it was and how nice he was and how pleasant he was and how non-confrontational. Um, maybe that uh, message got to Mr. Putin. He wasn't happy about it. Uh, I think that um, look, the Russians are are famous for throwing tantrums at, in international gatherings and and uh, in in meetings with Europeans. And I wouldn't expect that behavior to change now that uh, Medvedev has, has taken over the presidency. I'm talking with Daniel Silva, author of many wonderful books, all of them, by the way, available at danielsilvabooks.com, of course, at amazon.com as well. His brand-new bestseller, Moscow Rules, in airports and bookstores near you right now. Uh, Daniel Silva, I just got back to the Dominican Republic, spent a few days down there with mm -hmm. Children International, and their dictator, Trujillo, who was uh, in power for 40 years, would do the Putin thing occasionally. He'd step down from being president, but he'd keep his office in the uh, in the palace, and he you know put someone up as the front guy. I think we're stuck with Putin until he dies. What's your assessment? Um, I don't. I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, every piece of uh, gossip and intelligence that I've been able to pick up from you know senior contacts in the administration and CIA, we believe that Vladimir Putin is almost certainly a billionaire at this point. Um, he has managed to scarf up a lot of, of wealth and, and gather a lot of, of, of dough while he's been in office. Um, at a certain point, you know, he, he might be willing to, to step off the stage and and live his billionaire's life. Um, I'm not. I am not sure. It's it's very very difficult uh, to gauge. Um, what he really wants, um, even during the 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 run up to the to the uh, musical chairs that they played, um, it was my understanding from talking to people in the administration that the CIA 
really could not uh, tell the president and predict to the president exactly how it was going to unfold. They just really had no idea until they finally came out and made their announcement and how they were going to pull this off. So I'm not sure we know what Putin wants. Yeah, Dan, and we're going to come back later in the conversation to Moscow rules and the specifics of the story, but let's focus on Russia for a second. Uh, I was telling my uh, my wife last night that we'd be talking about this, and I said you took your children to Moscow for an entire summer. Her first question was, how could you visit that traffic on your kids? We were in Russia a couple summers ago. Did they enjoy that period of time in Moscow? Oh, my gosh, yes. I mean, part of it is, you know, not, not so much fun for them. You know, uh, you know I, I took them to the to see the uh, one of the – Sites where where the great purges was was carried out, a village called Butovo, south of Moscow, yep. is now a memorial. And you know, trying to get the children up to go to visit a, a Stalinist killing ground wasn't exactly easy. <laughs> but, no. uh, but you know what? They love it. And coincidentally, my uh, in my son's English class, they read Animal Farm uh, this semester. And, and he noted that he yeah. he unlike everyone in the class, understood everything about it. Um, and because he had been to to the Kremlin itself. How long did you Kremlin spend? In... He had been inside the KGB headquarters. So oh, thought. he got into Lubyanka? We did. With you? Oh, I saw that you got in. to go in. Wow. And uh, so uh, he, uh, I try to take them along whenever I can. I think it's it's uh, it's just one of the blessings of, of being able to do the work that I do, and I try to share it with them. How long did you spend in Moscow last year? Um, a couple of weeks. Wow. Now, in terms of uh, and the traffic, you're right. The traffic is miserable, oh. but you have to experience it. It's, it's part of. Uh, you look, everyone loved St. Petersburg. You know, and fawns over the the museums and the canals and the beautiful buildings. I did too, but to me, Russia is Moscow. And I agree. Moscow is the definitely the beating heart of the new Russia, and I am. Very tough on the Russian government in the, in this novel yes, and some of the things that are going on in Russia. But my gosh, did I fall in love with that? Place. Well, they're not very happy with you. If this has been translated <laughs> into Russian, they're not going to like Daniel Silva too much. I don't think it's going to be. Oh, in the, I hope they can take a joke because I would love to go back and 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 feel comfortable there because I just, it's a very very interesting place. When we come back, uh, we're going to start walking through the the story of Daniel Silva and his incredible success as an an artist in espionage. Before I do that, you must be working on next year's book right now, correct? I am. Is it about Iran? Uh, It is not. Okay, it just uh, was a guess. No, no, it's going to be... going to follow up some of the themes and characters from from Moscow Rules. Oh, Ivan Karkov is coming back? (laughs) I'm just not prepared to go down that road with you. All right. When we come back, uh, we'll continue the conversation with Daniel Silva about Moscow Rules. All the books, again, over at DanielSilvaBooks.com. That's S-I-L-V-A, DanielSilvaBooks.com. The first one is The Kill Artist. Actually, the first three didn't concern uh, Gabriel alone, so we'll catch up with all that when we return. Don't go anywhere, America. Special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. 21 minutes after the hour, America, Hugh Hewitt. Welcome. Special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. I'm not yet back from Italy, but I pre-taped this before I left with author Daniel Silva. Brand new book, Moscow Rules, out now. Magnificent read as the previous Gabriel Lawn books are. Uh, Daniel, in times when I've sat down with authors before, the nonfiction people like Lawrence Wright or Robin Wright and spent an entire show with them, and the only other time I've ever done this with a not, with a fiction writer, Stephen Pressfield, uh, I always like to start a little bit about the craft and, and how you go about it, but biography first. You were born in Detroit, Michigan. Your family moved to California. Why and when did they do that? Um, 
Well, we lived out in western Michigan. Oh, western uh, Michigan, okay. And, and if you have ever spent a winter in western Michigan. I went to uh, Ann Arbor Law School, so okay. I know Michigan. <laughs> um, we lived, my parents are both school teachers. We lived in a little summer house on Crooked Lake out there. And the winter of 1967 was one for the books. And wow. <laughs> the house was buried beneath snow, and they just, you know, had enough, and um, it was a time when when a school teacher could snap their finger and get a job, and and um, we we headed west. And, Were you reluctant to go? What are you about five? Uh, no, I was about I was uh, seven actually, okay. um, and sure I think so. But um, moved to California, um, grew up in in uh, Central California, and um, I actually feel very lucky to have lived. Um, in the, in the kinds of places where, where I lived as a child. I, 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 anyone who knows me knows that I, I just love this country dearly and, and love people in the middle of the country, um, real Americans, as I tell my children who live in Washington, D.C. And, um. Which part of, uh, Central California were you in? Uh, I was in, uh, the San Joaquin Valley, uh, a little town sure. called Merced, kind oh, of east of the Bay Area. I know Merced very well. And, and, uh, you know, Victor Davis Hansen is one of those real Americans, a farmer he's a from the Fresno this... State professor, yeah. is he not? Yes. Uh, although he's now at Stanford and Hillsdale more than he spent, I think he's actually retired from, uh, Fresno State or Cal State. Fresno is actually where I think mm-hmm. he was, but, but also writes out of that. The Central Valley is a unique place. You went to San Francisco State and, and tell people, uh, actually, uh, when you went to high school, you were public high school? Yes, I uh, uh, went to private um, junior high school um, and uh, public high school kid, yeah. And when did you learn to write? Um, I learned to write, um, I, I hesitate to say this, but it, it's, I, I think it just sort of came in the DNA. Um, I was always a good writer in school. Um, I was able to... Uh, be a, a, a journalist at the local newspaper at, at a very, very young age. As a, um, just had the had the gift, I guess, um, and could always string a couple of sentences together. And um, and just knew early on what I wanted to do. Um, and I knew that I, I did not come from a family of means, so the option of you know sitting around and Tinkering away on my on my novel for a few years after graduation wasn't one that was available to me, so I, I went to work as a journalist first because I thought it would be uh, good training in the art of storytelling, that it would provide me with interesting experiences, and, and all that turned out to be the case. You know, we're sitting around. There's a lot of uh, sympathy for journalists, obviously, in Moscow rules, and we'll get to the part about that. But I, no question. Uh, we're living through the collapse of print journalism uh, in the old style. It, it saddens are. me. It must sadden you. Uh, See the the once great Los Angeles Times have to um, what they lose the other day uh, another 150 from announced the 150 it's really going to be 300 by December's end uh, uh, fully 30 percent of the newsroom it is um, you know when I was a when I was a kid in the San Joaquin Valley there was one little newsstand uh, bookstore downtown that opened really early and you could get the L A Times it was before it was was widely circulated in that part of California and I would plunk down my money and get that big thick newspaper every single day and and read every word in it it was uh, it was a great newspaper and to i was just in los angeles a couple of weeks ago and to to see this little almost pamphlet that it's become uh it's very very sad and um uh i am 
not one who, who looks on the death of, of print journalism <laughs> as something good. I think that um, uh, to, to turn on, you know, the cable shout shows, which I have a past in myself, uh, and, and it is not journalism that we are watching every evening on television. Um, it is polarizing. It's not necessarily good for the country. Uh, you have Fox News speaking to one audience, MSNBC speaking to another, uh, CNN somewhere in between. And uh, we need print journalists, and we need straight, serious journalism. Um, I, I agree 100% with that. We'll come back to how we learn that reflected out of what's happened in Russia in Moscow rules. But take us, you know, you go to San Francisco State, mm-hmm. and then you get out. Is UPI your first job? Uh, it was, and I and um, I also worked at a small newspaper uh, in Palo Alto uh, for a while. So after college, I had um, I worked from six to two in downtown San Francisco, and then I would jump in my car and drive to uh, to Palo Alto and work a four to midnight shift as a cub police reporter, you know, police and fire reporter down down in the peninsula. Now, you know, I was just a media fellow at Stanford, and I think that daily in Palo Alto is it's still going. Oh, there's, there yeah, is a daily. Is yeah, it? it was Peninsula Times Tribune, and that oh. one is gone, I believe. Oh, that's too bad. And uh, so I was, um, I started that way. 16 and, hours a day of reporting, huh? <laughs> yeah. Wow. And, uh, and luckily, the only thing that saved me is that both jobs would happen to be Monday through Friday. Uh, and so I could sleep all weekend. I used to hop in the car and go to my parents' house and let my mom do my laundry for me and get some sleep. Uh, but, you know, it's just one of those situations where it was so tough to get a job in, in the business back then, uh, it's in the early 80s, that, you know, anyone who, who said yes, I just I took it, you know. When did you meet? You're married to NBC News correspondent on the Today Show, Jamie Gingell. Where did you meet her? Was she we also- met uh, in the Persian Gulf um, in uh, December 1987. I was uh, chief Middle East correspondent for UPI then, um, based in Cairo. But but um, I also spent a lot of time in in the Persian Gulf. Actually, uh, had two residences and and uh, right. Jamie. We, it was during the period, I'm not sure if you recall, what, uh, when we put the, the United States put the Kuwaiti oil fleet under U.S. flag. Uh, yes, we read the first yeah. Iran-Iraq war after the attack on the Stark. Yeah. Um, and she came out on a Pentagon pool, uh, pool coverage. We met, fell in love, and, uh, decided to get married, and we were married about eight months later. Interesting period of time. It's being pointed to now as Iran threatens to close the Straits of Hormuz, and people are looking back when Reagan reflagged everything and saying it doesn't work when they threaten to do that. Uh, uh, when we come back, we'll pick up the story. We lost a couple of years there between San Francisco and Palo Alto and getting <laughs> the Middle East, and we'll figure that out with Daniel Silva is my guest. Entire broadcast today, one of the finest practitioners of the espionage, espionage novel at work in the world today. His brand-new book is Moscow Rules. It is, uh, of course, a guy Gabriel Alon book. It's one of, I think it's number eight in that series. We'll talk about him, about the series, much more about the craft and the art and the recovery of the espionage genre when we return. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Hugh Hewitt Show. 34 minutes after the hour, America. Hugh Hewitt, welcome to the program. I'm talking today with Daniel Silva, author most recently of the fine new espionage novel, Moscow Rules, in bookstores, airports, Amazon.com, anywhere you go. But you can also get it from DanielSilvaBooks.com, his website, 
Now, Daniel, whenever I do a, a lengthy interview with an artist, whether it's a songwriter, a musician, uh, or a um, uh, someone in film, uh, the people in the audience start listening very closely who can imagine themselves doing that, and they always want to know about the transition. They always want to know about how did you get from being a journalist to being a full-time writer, and a lot of that requires them to know kind of the years you spent practicing the craft. So take us from UPI on the peninsula through the foreign desk through Cairo to when you looked at your wife and said, you know what, I'm going to, I want to be a novelist because that's got to be an interesting transition. Yeah. Um, Look, I, I knew what I wanted to do. And in in many ways I was um, a, I was masquerading. I was a novelist masquerading as a journalist, never wrote anything fictitious as a journalist, but I, I always knew exactly what I wanted to do. And um, I finally, you know, Told my wife, "This is this is what I want to do. I need to I need to sit down and, and you, you got to let me have the times in the morning to, to try this." I, um, at, at the time, I was I had a very big job at, at uh, CNN. I'd moved it from UPI to, to uh, CNN after we got married, and I was the executive producer of all of their um, political talk shows: Crossfire, Capital Gang, Evans and Novak, uh, Late Edition. That was uh, that. You know, it was my responsibility. I had a huge job, um, and it was at that point where I just, you know, started getting up and at five in the morning and and, and working on a manuscript. And um, so it was something that I always wanted to do, had prepared for for a long time, and it was just a matter of making the commitment. And I I think that I'm always stunned when. Very, very young people write novels. I, I didn't feel that I was ready to, to try it until I was in, you know, my, at least my early 30s. Oh, good caution. Let me guess, was Tom Johnson one of your mentors? Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> Always happens. He was. Tom is, uh, and, and I just, uh, bumped into him not long ago this winter at a, at a big, uh, cancer fundraiser in Washington. I think he and his wife were very involved in, uh, in, uh, MD Anderson. And it was great catching up with him. And, and uh, you know, I worked on um, my first manuscript that went on to become The Unlikely Spy in complete secrecy. Huh. I wanted to – I didn't tell anyone, um, especially at work, what I was doing. And uh, I, 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 I always find it difficult and uncomfortable when people want to talk about the novel they're writing you know, I think that you should do it in private and then talk about it. But, um, but also, I wanted to preserve the the, the right to fail in private. You know, uh, and when I uh, did get that first book deal, the the, the person that was most supportive and and uh, most energetic about the process was Tom. He's a great guy. It's 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 extraordinary. I don't know him, but I, the number of people I have met in media whom he met, I was just talking about him the other day with a friend of mine, Bill Lobdell, whose dad was the general counsel of the LA Times for a lot of years, and Tom mm-hmm. Johnson. Was, it, he shows up in about a thousand careers, and I've yeah. never met him, but it certainly is a very interesting guy like to American LA. media. <laughs> uh, tell me a little bit about when you were writing, uh, obviously you throw yourself into espionage, who were you reading? Was it Le Carre? Was it Len Dayton? Who was it? Um... I am. I really do flow from that British tradition much more than the American tradition. Yes. Um, and so I had read all that stuff, um, you know, growing up as a kid with Alistair MacLean and Jack Higgins thrown in, and and so I I really felt that my style was a um, 
an amalgam, if you will, of, of um, some of the more literate writers mixed in with uh, some of the more pure adventure writers. And I think that's one of the reasons um, why the series has worked the way it has. But the difference is if you read Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy or Game Set Match or any of these great novels that are sixes and, and eights and tens, they're not as current as your series of books have been in terms of taking headlines out. And, and really, today, in fact, we're talking – there's been an attack on the American embassy in Turkey, and right. I immediately thought of uh, Death in Vienna, yeah. where there was an attack on the American embassy in, in Rome, as I recall. And and so I don't think they ever tried to do that. How do you stay abreast of, like, what what's your information source for what's happening now? What do you uh, read? Um, my what's happening now sources are, um, look, daily, daily reader of New York Times, Washington Post, but... Um, I also read, I tend to at least leaf through the, the Telegraph and the Times in London. Uh, I read Israeli newspapers as well. Uh, oh, interesting. And then the BBC website. So I, I'm, you know, this is when I'm, when I'm not writing. When I first wake up in the morning, I try not to let the real news um, get in my way. But. Right back with Daniel Silva when we return to the Hugh Hewitt Show. 44 minutes after the hour, American Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back. Uh, I am not back yet. I am, in fact, uh, still in Venice. I'll be back in a couple of days. Look forward to talking to you again. Thanks to all the guest hosts who have been holding down the fort. But I taped this interview today with Daniel Silva before I left because uh, I'm a, a great fan of his work, love all of his books, his new book, Moscow Rules. Coming out this week, I had the great privilege of reading it in advance, thanks to his publisher. You'll find it as fascinating as the previous books. When we went to break... Daniel Silva, you were saying you yes, try I not. Stepped on the break. I'm yeah. so sorry. That's okay. You're, you know, you know that because you were a producer. <laughs> I, I should have listened. <laughs> Got to make the music come up a little bit louder. But the, um, you were saying you try not to let the real news get in the way of your writing, right. and I think that's a, a very interesting insight into yeah. the struggle. Explain that to people. I wall off my part of the day where 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 I'm involved in my world, <clears throat> and then. Um, and then I, I come out of that shell um, briefly, and then I live in the real world. And then that's really – it's a wonderful thing to inhabit, uh, you know, two places. And uh, But but I really – you know, I roll out of bed. I Like my – like most writers, I think, I, I do a lot of writing in my sleep. Um, Graham Greene, I learned a lot of lessons from him, and, and one of the things he did is always read what he wrote that day right before he went to bed and then – you know, I just find that when I when I roll out of bed, I just grab a cup of coffee and go down and start writing because that's always the most productive time. That those that first hour that you're awake. And and is that a do you set for yourself a discipline that every single day or at least Monday through Friday that's what you do? Uh, monk like, and it is not Monday through Friday. I I um I work seven days a week. I find it very very difficult to take days off. Uh, it's rather like an actor staying. Uh, in character on a set, you know, it's, if you come out, it's just harder to get back in. I, I find taking even a single day that when I, when I, you know, come back and, and start writing again, that, that uh, takes me a little longer to get back into it. So I try to write every day. Do you know where you're going to end at the beginning of every novel? Haven't or? the foggiest. Haven't the foggiest. Well, um, I, I know maybe about a, a third of it and, and I don't want to know any more than that. Um, I want to bring the characters and the story to life on the page and then let the characters lead me by the hand to the finish line. Uh, I've been working with Gabriel long enough to know that um, at a certain point, you just got to put the story in his hands and get out of the way. 
Now, do you hear the conversation, or do you write it first and then hear it? Yeah, you know, I was, I was. It was funny you should ask. That's a great question. Um, I sometimes feel, when, particularly when Gabriel is with his mentor Ari Shamron, that I'm just a mere stenographer, and that these characters have so come to life in my head, and they're so part of our family, that you just really. Um, in, you know, just kind of writing down what they say. It's not, it's, when you really work on a novel and, and, and you really get that magic and you get into that clear air, it's not that you're making up a story. It's just that you're writing down a story that you already know or you're remembering a story. I know that sounds kind of weird, but it's, um, that's the point where I like to get to where you're just, um, you know, it's, it's like it, there's the memory of the story is so imprinted in your in your subconscious that you're just writing down something that you already know. You know, there are a couple of recurring places in your books: Shamron's villa, the waiting room in the in the airport where Mossad people go to when they return. <clears throat> and, and when you're, do you see that when you're writing? Uh, uh, that's a sort of an extension of the question I said about do you hear it? Do you see them in those rooms? Do you have you a bet. vision? You bet. I mean. One of the things that I'm a stickler for and, um, is a term that, that we use called point of view, um, and that every scene has a point of view through the eyes of a character. And, and sometimes I'll go God's eye and, 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 and write um, in a more omniscient point of view, but I generally, I have, you know, in the, the formula of my novels were really with Gabriel 75 to 80 percent of the time, and so... I see things through his eyes, and and because of, he's an artist, he has a very unique vision, um, and I try to capture that vision. And so he's very um, observant about certain kinds of things, and I try to to, uh, to to use that to my advantage when I'm when I'm writing. Well, that that's the cue to to sort of plunge in now for the audience, and lots of them have never even heard of Gabriel Alon until this moment. Am I, by the way, am I pronouncing his last name the way you pronounce it? I, I do tend to anglicize it, yeah. If, if in Hebrew he would be um, Gavriel with a with a V, um, and alone would be the way that he would say it in Hebrew. But I, in English, it's Gabriel Alon. All right, and, and so uh, as we go there, uh, I just got to ask: there are no movies yet out of this series of books, and yet I would think that every producer in Hollywood be trying to get, hey, it's eight books. It, you know, it's Pierce Bronze's next life as a sort of an aging spy. Is it optioned? Um, it has been optioned at various points, various books at various times. And um, we um, have a number of offers on the table, and I'm just making sure that, that when I do let it go this time, that it's to the right person. Oh, good for you, because I, I I love the fact that there's no actor in my mind when I read this at that this point. I, and that is, I don't have an actor in my mind when I write it. Um, I've always found that rather strange that people picture actors to their characters. My character is my character, and he looks the way he looks. He doesn't look like someone else. Uh, that's that's right. Now, let's talk about about him. He's a Mossad agent. Let's give the brief history that you, even if you're starting at the beginning with the kill artist, he has a history in the kill artist. That's right. Tell people what it is. Um, he is a Sabra, meaning that he was born in Israel uh, to the uh, parents of uh, of German Holocaust survivors. Um, he spoke 
German. They they spoke German at at, at home, so his first language is actually not Hebrew but German. Um, and as I've pointed out in a number of books, that he still dreams in German. So he has this very split personality in terms of uh, of that. Um, Hold that thought. Okay. I I messed the cue up this time. <laughs> I was looking at the wrong cue. I'll be right back as we introduce you to Gabriel alone with Daniel Silva, his author. We return to the Hugh Hewitt Show. 55 minutes after the hour, concluding the first of three hours with Daniel Silva, my guest, uh, author of many wonderful books, uh, the last eight of which feature Gabriel alone. We were talking about him. He's in his new book, of course, Moscow Rules, available everywhere now, and you can get it from DanielSilvaBooks.com or an area airport or bookstore near you, and you will thank me for pointing you to it if you already didn't know about it. Uh, we, you were saying as, he's a Sabra Alonez, born of Holocaust survivors and still dreaming in German, his first language. Pick it up from there, uh, his uh, Daniel. His grandfather um, was a famous German expressionist painter. His mother was a very gifted painter, uh, and Gabriel was a very gifted painter himself. He was studying at uh, the Beit Halal. Institute of Art in in Jerusalem in September 1972. Bethel is like the national uh, art school in in in, uh, in Egypt, in Israel. Uh, and September 1972, of course, was the date of the Munich Olympics massacre. And as many people know from the movie Munich, uh, the Israelis put together a team and went after the people who carried out that attack. And Gabriel was the primary gunman on that um, hit team, Operation Wrath of God. And he um, worked on that operation for three years. Um, when he came home, he, he looked different. The stress of it tore him up. Um, and he was also lost the ability to paint. And so he studied, went back to Italy, and became an art restorer. Uh, so he's fixing paintings now. Um, and he also, from time to time, did other sorts of jobs for uh, Israeli intelligence. And um, so that is sort of where he's at now. He is a, a restorer and sometimes, uh, as I call him, secret servant of Israeli intelligence. He has done assassination work, but he's really much more than, a, than an assassin. Much more. And he has lost his... Son and and he had uh, he uh, in 1991 while on assignment in Vienna a terrorist uh, uh, placed a bomb under his car and, uh, and killed his son uh, and grievously wounded his wife uh, and she is alive his first wife and and lives in a uh, psychiatric hospital on Mount Herzl and his poor son uh, is buried and on. Mount of Olives in in, in uh, Israel. So he is a, in a way, he is a warning about what happens to m people who, who and and men in this situation that we have in our country right now. When when we decide to fight terrorists on their levels, it is it is a. Uh, not a pretty picture. It's a, it's very bracing. He's a hero who has bled and will talk and who has changed as a result. We'll talk about him and the message in these books, which is uh, multi-layered, very complex. When we return, hour number two, straight ahead. My guest, Daniel Silva, author most recently of Moscow Rules. Don't go anywhere. Special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. Morning, glory, and grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Hour number two of a special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. No, I'm not back from Europe yet. I will be back on Wednesday, but I take this interview uh, because the opportunity arose before I left. 
With Daniel Silva, author of many wonderful novels, but most recently, Moscow Rules, a brand new book available in bookstores now and airports and from Amazon.com. It's linked at youhewitt.com, and Daniel Silva's website is danielsilvabooks.com. And if you have been listening the first hour, you'll be hooked. But if you haven't, let me tell you to, to tune in and go back and get that from the podcast sometime. We begin to talk about the central character of the last eight of Daniel Silva's uh, 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 11 novels. Uh, his name is Gabriel Alon. He is an Israeli. He's a Sabra. He is a, a secret agent. He has been an assassin. He does a lot for the uh, the Secret Servant of Israel. But he's also an art restorer. And I want to pick up there, Daniel Silva. Did you come to these books with much working knowledge of art? Um, not beyond the you know the odd college art history course and a and a, just a passionate love of art. Um, and I just make sure that. Um, People who are a lot smarter than me about art read uh, my stuff before it goes to print. But I'm actually a, a good researcher and careful, and and, um, uh, and and do all my own research when it comes to art. Now, in the afterwards of Moscow Rules, you mentioned David Bull, who is a, an accomplished art restorer himself. Right. How did you come across him, and what's he given you in terms of appreciation? I, I, frankly, until I read your books, I, I was unaware that such a profession existed. Though obviously, it had to. I just didn't think to. about it. It has to. Um, it. He was a, a uh, <clears throat> conservator or a restorer at the National Gallery of Art in Washington at the time. He lived around the corner from me in, in Georgetown. Uh, so he worked for the gallery, but he also worked privately. Um, and his house was wonderful because it had no proper or no serious alarm system on it. Oh. But he had, um, um, you know, his was, address was fairly private, but you could walk in there and there would be you know, easily, you know, $200 million worth of art that he would be working on, everything from, you know, Van Gogh to Monet to Titian. I mean, it's just, it's, it's extraordinary. Uh, and he was just a friend, and I had this idea that I wanted to use this as a as a cover for Gabriel. And I said, listen, I, I, I'm wondering if you can help me turn an Israeli assassin into an Italian art restorer. And he said, sure, no problem. And so we pieced together how where he would have studied and how he goes about his work. And and uh, How fast. Let's dig into that for a second, because obviously there comes a moment in the life of Daniel Silva where yeah. Alon erupts, erupts. Uh, like Athena. And when was that? Because this is just not your ordinary assassin. No. And it was, the funny thing is, is that he was never supposed to be a continuing character. And I had to be talked in to making him a continuing character because I was uh, deeply concerned about, um, look, you know, it's no secret that a lot of people don't like Israel very much. Um, Are you Jewish, by the way? I am. Okay. Um, I didn't know that. And Silva's uh, an unusual man. raised Catholic and, and um, converted to Judaism as an adult. But there's a, there's a tremendous amount of anti anti-Israelism um, in the world, uh, particularly in Western Europe, um, and uh, also, you know, no small amount of anti-Semitism. And I was just deeply concerned whether whether you could take a, an, an Israeli and turn him into a, a palatable, continuing character for an American audience. And, and I was I was told that my concerns were way off base, and as uh, best piece of advice I ever got. And I and I wrote it. The, the second book that I wrote about Gabriel had nothing to do with terrorism. It was a book about Switzerland and the Second World War, Holocaust, the art right. looting. A book that I wanted to write for a long time, and I took Gabriel, dropped him into this completely different setting, um, and it worked 
beautifully and, and sold probably twice as many books as the previous one. Now, you uh, cannot expect me to just wander. You've blown up my outline now. So I have oh, to I'm back. sorry. <laughs> but, but to be raised Catholic and to become uh, Jew is, is an interesting, and I'm sure a lot of people say, well, stop there. You, what, what was that about? When did that happen? Um, okay. <laughs> We're going to go straight for the heart of the matter. Sure. Um, it happened as, as an adult. Um, um, I was raised in a very strict Catholic home. Um, Were you an Catholic altar boy? School. Hmm? Altar boy? Altar boy. <laughs> mea culpa, mea culpa, mea magna culpa. And, and um, while I, I was always a, a, a person of, of considerable faith, um, and and love the church. I I was not truly a doctrinal Christian, if you get my meaning. I was a, much more a a God person, and and uh, and more comfortable uh, doctrinally as 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 a Jew than I was a Roman Catholic um, and a Christian. And that's um, and so I have a anyone who reads, for example, a book like The Messenger where Gabriel works um, to save the life of, of the Holy Father, the Pope, um, and knows that, that can probably read between the lines and see that, that, that I still have a great reverence and love and respect for the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, I have a continuing character in the novel, the Pope's private, or in the series, excuse me, the Pope's senior. private secretary, Luigi Donati, uh, and the Pope himself is a continuing character. So there's some little clues in there about my uh, about my split religious path. Yeah, I'm not going to say it explains everything, but boy, it's, it's quite uh, part of the tumbler that you've got to unlock here. And so then I also I also fell in love with a with a Jewish woman um, and uh, wanted my children to be raised uh, Jewish and and uh, and uh, didn't want to be different from them. Now, how observant are you? Um, we belong to a very nice synagogue in in Washington D.C. Um, we celebrate the holidays and and Shabbat and um, children were just. Uh, I have twins, so we had was was known as a b'nai mitzvah, uh, where they were bar and mitzvah at the same time. Well, congratulations um, on it. So how often was have the you, best day of my life? Oh, how, how often have you been to Israel? Uh, several times. And um, uh, when when did you actually convert? You have to go through that process, as I understand. <laughs> uh, as the gosh, what year was it now? Um, it was actually after I started writing the Gabriel series, shortly after. That is so fascinating. How has it informed how deep you go into the Israeli side of the book? Because a lot of it is Europe, obviously, but there's also these intermittent periods in Israel. And how much has that impacted your desire to get deeper into it? Um, I'm not sure. That is a good question, and I don't know that I can answer it. Um, Gabriel, like most Israelis of his generation, was raised in a a <laughs> deeply secular home right um and and you know the holocaust had a, a terrible impact on on uh many jews that caused them to lose their faith and 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 many of the uh, jews who who came to israel and that uh um either before the formation of the state of israel and after were were very very secular um and and people really don't quite grasp that israel has gotten more religious as, as time has gone by and 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 um uh, the religious community is wielding more and more power now but at, at its formation it was a very secular place and that was um reflected in gabriel's life i think i wrote in in um 
in A Death in Vienna, there's a scene where Gabriel is watching Ari Shamron's wife light Shabbat candles, and he had never seen it. It's something that had not been done in his home. He had been raised in, in, in a home without religion. So what is Daniel Silva's view of God and how he works in the world? <laughs> Are we going to do this on a radio program? Oh, sure. Um, uh, I don't know that I could I could uh, put that into to uh, a uh, something that could go on a on a radio show, but I I think that uh, I am definitely believe that uh, God exists and, and um, uh, God plays a role in my life. And uh, um, let me put it: Is he active in using individuals to accomplish his purposes in this world? I is one of the great mysteries, and I don't know the answer to that. What is really Gabriel think? I, I, I think about it all the time, um, and I would hope so, but I'm not sure. All right, because uh, you have to be as you have to uh, uh, account for an awful lot of evil in the world, and um, I just I don't know how to explain that. Yeah, I just uh, I was just in D.C. a couple of weeks ago and went to the Holocaust Museum for the first time, and you can see how obviously it would shatter many people's faith. It's the problem yeah. of evil. Uh, I. Did a lot of research there. I, I, there's had a wonderful research institute up top in the in the in the Holocaust Museum, um, and have spent a lot of time there. And Yad Vashem in Israel, uh, and to walk down that, there's a wonderful exhibits in 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 the Holocaust Museum. Um, two of them are the ones that haunt me. The shoes yeah. are awful, and then that they took a a, a shtetl from either Lithuania or Latvia, I can't remember, and just put the photographs of everyone who died. Um, yeah, it goes for two stories. There, yeah, two stories. Uh, of, two floors of, yeah. of faces, and to have them gaze at you, um, it is easy to sit, understand why people would think that they had been forsaken by God. My guest is Daniel Silva, uh, author of many wonderful books, full of lots of complexity. You really got to read them. The most recent one is Moscow Rules. We'll come back and continue the conversation. We return to the Hugh Hewitt Show. 21 minutes after the hour, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Thanks for listening. Special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show with author Daniel Silva. His brand new book is Moscow Rules, available in bookstores, airports, everywhere. Fantastic read for the beach for your travel. But there are also seven books preceding that that uh, deal with the protagonist of the novel, uh, Gabrielle Alone, and three before that. All of them are available at DanielSilvaBooks.com. Uh, Daniel, let's uh, go back to Israel for a second. Obviously, you are very sympathetic to the state of Israel, as I am, as this audience generally is, um, extraordinarily so. I'm wondering if that has evoked hostility uh, from some parts of your audience who must come away thinking that, that you are so pro-Israel that you can't be giving fairness, not having read it, by the way, I think you're very, very fair to some of the Palestinians and Arabs that we encounter along the It Books way. But what's been the reaction of the reading public to this point of view? Um, I mean, for the most part, the readers of the series like it, but I get my share of people who fling me the ugly letter now and again or and send me the ugly email, and, and um, you know, I just brush it off. I mean... Look, if you take the two books that deal with um, the Palestinian question, The Kill Artist and The Prince of Fire, the Palestinian characters in those novels are deeply sympathetic. Right. And, and uh, you know, for the record, Daniel Silva is a, a devout two-stater, okay? Yep. <laughs> I believe that there should be a Palestinian state living side by side with the state of Israel. Um, I don't think we're going to get there anytime soon, um, but I, I believe that. Uh, the, the, the two books that, that deal with, with 
Jihadism, uh, the messenger and the secret servant, they are not sympathetic towards the global jihadists. I don't have any sympathies toward the global jihadists, the people who, who, um, want to, uh, create a, a caliphate and drive us from the Middle East and will use any grotesque act of violence to achieve that end. There's no sympathy for, I have no sympathy for them. Uh, they're rather unsympathetic characters. In now, do you think that uh, the counterparts to Ari Shamron, the head of Mossad, the Israeli mm-hmm. Secret Service, and Gabriel Lone are, are losing sleep as we speak over Ahmadinejad, the supreme leader of, uh, and the supreme leader, not Ahmadinejad, but uh, Khatimi, and all the other mullahs running around Iran who have launched uh, ballistic missiles on this day that we talk? Uh, no question. Um, no question. Um, I have had many conversations with with. Israeli officials about this, and I'm, I come away with two impressions. Um, once I was told by a senior Mossad official, do you really think that we are going to sit around and do nothing while they develop a nuclear bomb? Um, do you really think that? But then the second thing that, that strikes me every time I have this conversation is that when they talk about using the, the, uh, the military option to deal with it, it usually is preceded by the words, God forbid, because they know that if they have to do it, um, it is going to turn the Middle East into a cauldron. Also, um, the Iranians have very cleverly created two proxy armies on Israel's border, one in the north called Hezbollah and one in the south called Hamas. Uh, it is now estimated that, that Hezbollah has about 42,000 uh, short-range uh, missiles and rockets. Remember a couple of years ago when Israel went, uh, went to war briefly with Hezbollah, maybe the estimate then was about 15,000. They have rearmed, they are armed to the teeth, and Israel knows that, that if it strikes it at Iran's nuclear facilities, that Hezbollah is going to be able to launch a extraordinarily violent retaliatory strike that will probably depopulate the north of Israel. So regardless of who does it uh, under these scenarios, whether it's the United States or Israel, Israel is going to be the one that's going to pay the short-term price. There's also an article on the day we tape this uh, in the Gloria Center's publication on Fortress Gaza and how the same thing has now happened on the southern border, including an armament escalation to rival that of Hezbollah's on the northern border. I got some really interesting intelligence on that recently during a briefing that, that the Iranians are putting the kind of weapons into uh, Gaza that, that, you know, there are not just the little, com, uh, Qassam rockets there anymore. They are putting much more serious things That's what there. the Gloria Center's, uh, Jonathan Spire said. Well, well, how often do you talk with Israeli intelligence people? Every now and again. Um, but I don't, it's not that I'm sitting there with them working <clears throat> through my plots or, or asking them how to do things. I mean, at, after eight books, these characters are, I have my own. In fact, I don't call my service the Mossad. As readers know, I call it, I refer to it as the office. I never say what their real name is. And I, I wanted to just have create the, <clears throat> create some distance between my family of characters and the real thing. How do the real thing react to your books? <laughs> they like it, obviously. And they sometimes, uh, I'm told about little quarrels and disagreements where some, some people think, oh, well, that's me and that's me. And, and, uh, um, but look, it's, 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 uh, I think that they're as surprised as I am that a, a, character from the Israeli Secret Services is, is 
it appears at the top of the bestseller list in this country. Now, it's been my honor to know a few agency people uh, on the operations side, and, and they're never as exotic as Gabriel. They, they live ordinary lives in places like Reston and Vienna, and that's the end of Virginia. <laughs> Oakton. Oakton and places like that. What do they think of these books? Because uh, they come off a little bit, and we'll talk about this, unwilling to get their hands dirty, uh, a little Dartmouthy, a little, you know, generally speaking, let Mossad do it in your mm-hmm. books. Um well, that is in, in the uh, in the last couple of books, Gabriel has worked in a way almost as a subcontractor for um, for the CIA, um, and I, I know that there are many fans of the series that that work at at Langley. Um, and but look, the, the war on terrorism; these guys are getting their hands dirty all over the place, and and it's coming back to to bite them actually, and and uh, lots of people at at Langley and elsewhere are lawyering up, as they say, because uh, uh, there's going to be some trouble ahead over some of the tactics that we employed during the the war on terrorism. How often do you talk with uh, the Americans in the business? Um, well, I have lots of friends in the business, so it can um, I. I CIA agents and, and and undercover officers socially all the time. Is the trade craft imagined or taught? Uh, in terms of my novels, yeah, um, the, it is. I, I use um, established uh, trade craft for, uh, where I can, and quite frankly, I I make up the rest. I mean, okay. I'm not going to. I I you got to focus on what is important, and that is the the characters um and uh you know the tradecraft is is interesting to a point and well like the smiley novels it's a wonderful hook there's tradecraft in the smiley novels and there's tradecraft in the elan novels it's kind of a fun aspect i was just wondering if it was made up or if someone had but i i use i use terms um um and and their tradecraft um, where I can and where I want to, and and I uh, and invent or or create an amalgam of tradecraft where I where I need to. Coming right back with Daniel Silva, author of most recently Moscow Rules. The book's available at DanielSilvaBooks.com. Stay tuned; it's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Thirty-four minutes after the hour, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Thanks for listening. Joined by Daniel Silva, a novelist extraordinaire, author most recently of Moscow Rules. All of his books available at DanielSilvaBooks.com. Uh, Daniel, uh, Munich matters. Here we are just a couple of weeks before the opening of the Beijing Olympics, and Munich matters a lot in your eight Gabriel Alon novels. Uh, no and and uh, you were 12 at the time. I was 16. Do you recall watching Jim McKay through all those hours? Uh, it is seared into my memory, uh, and it was just, you know, it hit me at the right age where I was, my receptors were open, and it is just, and I also was a very serious uh, young runner as a kid and, and had dreams, un, unfulfilled dreams of maybe being in the Olympics someday. And so I, I, I watched the Olympics uh, religiously and uh, it just awful. And, yeah. and I and I watch all the films and watch Munich and watch One Day in September and, and see it all played out again. And it just still makes me sick to my stomach and, and makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Yeah, I try and convey to young people, you, you just couldn't get away from the television. And no. there was nothing on the television. You just watched for hours. Yeah, and uh, it, uh, I think it was a, a, like for Gabriel, it was a turning point in his life. It was also a turning point in my life. I mean, this was, 
it wasn't the 9-11 in terms of, of um, its loss of life and destruction of property, but it was a, a sort of uh, tear in the curtain, if you will, of, of human decency that, 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 that this happened. Um, and that, frankly, that the games resumed the next day. I know. And, uh, and so it, it, it affected me deeply as a child, and, and it just strange that I came to write about a character involved in it. Now, the passion that's in the book, at, on page 144 of the new book, Moscow Rules, you have Adrian Carter, the CIA Deputy Director for Operations, whatever his title is, say, it has become popular in Washington these days to think that the threat of terrorism has receded, that we can live with the occasional loss of national monuments in American life. But when the next attacks comes, and I do mean when, Gabriel, these same free thinkers will be the first to fault the agency for failing to stop it. It's a little bit of a sermon, one that I welcome the delivery of, but yeah. you live there in D.C., and I, whenever I go there, I'm astonished that here we are at Ground Zero, the target, uh, that they always come back to. There is this almost unworldly air of nonchalance. <laughs> But I was uh, in Aspen uh, uh, a few days ago, before publication, I should say, and um, a very senior official from the Department of Homeland Security was there and was having conversations. It was during the Ideas Festival and, and, and predicted that the odds of an attack in the United States before the election was 50-50 or better. <laughs> uh, there, There is a, a thought that Al-Qaeda will try to influence the election or give President Bush a, a send-off to remember. Um, and so I think that the, the – I, I don't know that the, the – if I would agree that it's that high, I have no basis to form that opinion. But, but I do think that we are uh, in, a, in a period of time where the chances of, a, of an attack are elevated. I spent a lot of time – That doesn't on... mean that they can't have the capability to do it either. I mean – um, you know, it is quite possible that we are actually winning this this thing called the war on terrorism. Uh, it's not something you hear a lot, um, but uh, we have degraded Al Qaeda substantially, and I'm not sure that they can carry one off. I, I spent a lot of time talking to people like Lawrence Wright, Robin Wright, uh, the folks who wrote the nuclear jihadists, et cetera, because I think we're living in this unworldly era. But does that sense of urgency inform how you go about your books? Or are you just a storyteller? Uh, no, I mean. Look, I live in Washington D.C. I uh, I could sit in, in my house in Georgetown and see what looked like a a Mount St. Helens cloud of smoke rising up from the Pentagon, uh, and uh, it was not as bad in Washington as it was in New York, obviously. But uh, you know, people streaming out of downtown Washington, up Wisconsin Avenue and, and Connecticut Avenue. White House complex being evacuated, uh, Capitol Hill being evacuated. I don't want to live through a day like that again, um, and I and I hope to God we don't. And when you talk to people outside of Aspen, though, uh, is that alarm, in your opinion, sufficiently widely spread and understood, not among the government, but among the chattering class, which used to supervise at CNN, and obviously you've got friends in the chattering class still. Mm -hmm. Do they get it? Um, they do, but I get the sense that we have consciously or unconsciously um, 
have entered or are about to enter the post 9-11 world. And, and um, it was always the danger of declaring war on terrorism. It's been a long time, long blog, uh, things have been done that we're not exactly proud of. And I have a feeling that it's all about to wear off and we're about to walk through that doorway into the post 9-11 world. We'll continue the conversation with Daniel Silva when we return. 44 minutes after the hour, America, talking with Daniel Silva on the special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show about his brand new book, Moscow. Scale rules and the seven that went before it featuring Gabriel Alon, a Mossad agent or an agent of Israel's uh, secret uh, ser- service. Uh, and he's had eight different adventures. The new one, Moscow rules heavily dependent on what's going on in Russia. We'll get to that mostly next hour. I do want to anchor people in Ari Shamron as well, uh, Daniel Silva. We were talking last time about how uh, Alon was influenced by Munich. Shamron is in your book, The Man Who Grabbed Eichmann. He was. And- and when people read Eichmann, I'll bet you not a lot of them have any idea of the significance of that. Is part of his role to kind of educate people on on the pre-Munich history of Israel and what it did and how it survived? Um, perhaps, but he is, um, you know, he is a, 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 a blend of a number of different legendary Mossad figures. Um, and I took a little from this one and a little from that one. Um, but really his defining moment um, was the, the capture of Adolf Eichmann. And, and um, there is a little dispute within Israeli intelligence about who actually was the one who, who uh, clamped uh, their hands around the guy. Really? How can they not know? Uh, because a couple of figures... Um, Fought over that 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 mantle, um, unfortunately. But then in my world, it was a it was a young in, intelligence officer named Ari Shamron, um, who was had an unusually powerful grip for such a small man, and um, uh, he actually had to grab him and 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 get him to the car, and uh, it just you know, changed his life as something of it, you know, one would think. Now, one of the things I, I like about your book is that not only does it pay a lot of respect to the Israeli secret services, but it's also demonstrates repeatedly they're not perfect. There's this image of, oh, you know, from Entebbe and all this other stuff that they can go anywhere at any time. But, in fact, they screw up a lot in these books, and I they like They screw that. up a lot because, um, well, I, you know, when I created – um, part of the, part of the uh, subtext of the first one, that the restorer Gabriel Alon, was I, I wrote it at a time when when Mossad had had really bungled a bunch of serious cases in a row, and there was a lot of talk that they'd lost their touch. Um, they tried to kill uh, Khalid Mashal, the head of Hamas um, in Jordan, and had failed, and and they. Lost a team in Europe. It was arrested in Switzerland trying to plan a simple bug. You know, they'd, they'd really seem to lose their way and lose their touch. Um, and I, it was against that backdrop that I wrote the first Gabriel book. And, and uh, you know, the analogy or the metaphor of restoration was was something that was important. Um, but look, they play in a very rough neighborhood, and they are they are willing to do things um, that traditional services. Um, are unwilling to do simply because of they they look they live on the razor's edge there. Um, you know, a, a a nuclear bomb 
in Iran looks one way to the people of the Netherlands and looks a very different way to the people of Israel. What's interesting is the tension over many of the books between the European services, whether it's uh, uh, MI6 or the French and right. the Italian and the Israeli services. Do you think that's real? Is that how it really plays out? That uh, they have it is. It is. Um, Take some dramatic licenses. For the for the most part, um, Israel has pretty good relations um, with the European security services. Uh, for the simple fact that the Israelis um, give offer the people of Europe much more protection than the people of Europe understand that they are are a source of a, a lot of intelligence about the movements of terrorists, um, and so. Uh, they they are a conduit for of intel and intel, uh, information for the security services and intelligence services of Europe. Uh, that said, um, the Israelis have have a record of doing things on on European soil that that uh, Europeans don't like, and so there's there I, I don't think that it's unfair to. Uh, to create some tension between Gabriel Alon and the various security services. Oh, it's a fascinating aspect. By the way, in your, in your last book, The Secret Servant, uh, five members of an Amsterdam mosque go missing, and it's picked up on. Do you think the level of surveillance and competence is, in fact, that deep as those among those who watch the jihadists? Um, yes, I do. Uh, I know for a fact that you take various mosques in Germany, for example, and they are seriously penetrated um, look there was there was a wonderful piece in in um, commentary magazine this month about uh, took an overall look at the at the global war on terrorism and asked the question are we winning and 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 one of the dark spots in the view of the author of this piece um, is it is was the subject of the secret servant that is Western Europe um, and to the extent to which jihadists are, are embedded within the European communities and the threat that, that European passport holders, for example, can, can uh, create for this country. Um, but if you take a, a typical radical mosque in Germany, uh, the German services are all over it. They are working with, with services in the Middle East. Um, they have bugged these places, um, you know, they, they are working very, very hard to make, to, to keep an eye on, on, on the terrorists that they know are within their midst. I mean, the, 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 the head of MI5 knows that he's got several thousand committed jihadists living in, uh, in, in the United Kingdom and, and cells that are operating. That this is just a fact of life about what's going on in some European countries. And, and do you try and read, as we have about 45 seconds, do you try and read the jihadist literature to get inside their heads in the way, for example, you, uh, you, you said you had no sympathy for them, but do you try and... Yes, I do. Interesting. Yes, I do, and I, and I, I understand what makes them tick. Um, I think that it, one of the, the things that I did well in The Secret Servant was, was yes. uh, how to, to, to take these two characters... Ibrahim and and Isak and, and explain how the father went in one direction and the son went in a completely different direction. We come back. We'll continue the conversation with Daniel Silva. His brand new bo uh, book is Moscow Rules. That's the eighth in the series. The first, the kill artist. Next hour, we'll go through the books and Moscow Rules. One more segment this hour. Don't go anywhere. If you want to order the books, DanielSilvaBooks.com or any bookstore near you. I'll be right back on the Hugh Hewitt Show. 55 minutes after the hour, America's special broadcast of the Hugh Hewitt Show devoted to a conversation with Daniel Silva, one of the leading practitioners, if not the best practitioner of the espionage novel over the last uh, eight years 
Affairs of the United States, his Gabriel Halon books, uh, most recent one of which is Moscow Rules, out now. Dominating bestseller list as people come to love the detail and the plotting. Uh, a couple of quick questions before we go to break. Food and drink play quite a lot, uh, a role in, in the, all of the Alone books. How much of a uh, of an eater and a drinker are you, Daniel Silva? <laughs> I am not. And I, uh, I eat a really simple, healthy diet and I, and I really, uh, don't touch, uh, alcohol beyond the, uh, the glass of wine with dinner. So. So someone must be but, cluing you in. But, <laughs> but I, I do go to Italy a fair amount. Um, the funny thing about the Elan books is that I do more research for the art aspects sometimes than I do for the uh for the thriller and plot parts and so uh, you know one of my one of my tough duties is to to go to Israel and 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 look at paintings and and talk to art experts there I mean I heard that you were you're going to uh to Venice, Venice. yes and uh, I, I, I was rereading Gabriel's work there. I know he's, he's done the Bellini altarpiece, and we're going to come back and I'll reread that on the plane over there. Let me ask you though about the Gary Larson temptation. When anyone I like a lot gets really, I worry that they're just going to say, "Okay, I'm done now," like Gary Larson did with the Far Side. Uh, what's what's the trajectory for Alon? How long do you think you'll be doing this? Um, I don't know, um, but I have no. I, I I have books that I'd like to get to. Um, but I, I love the characters. I uh, love the stories. Um, at, a, at a certain point, characters, you know, stop aging in, in readers' minds, and so it's, it's not a question of, of the character getting too old to do these kind of types of things. And it's it's um, really a question of how long I want to do it before I move on to other things. And I don't know the answer to that question. I never plan to write a series in the first place. Are your, are your family tired of Gabriel? Does, does, mm. does she ever turn to you and say, stop being Gabriel? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, they really become, I, you know, I, I, I always looked, uh, had a little bit of a skeptical reaction when I heard authors talk about their, their continuing characters and how they are, you know, alive in in their lives, and and I am not skeptical about that anymore. He is as real to me as 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 anyone else in my family. And and uh, how much of a day are you? T- how much does he enter into the to the mental life of Daniel Silva on an average day when you're not writing? When I'm not writing? Yeah. Um, you know, he's there definitely, and when I'm writing, it's just uh, he's 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 at my shoulder the whole time. I, I I I give little hints about my own work habits through his work habits, and there are times where I describe Bellini standing at Gabriel's shoulder helping him finish a painting, and, and that's how I feel with him sometimes. Hour number three, straight ahead, Daniel Silva, my guest, Moscow rules his new book. Don't go anywhere. Fascinating conversation. It has one third left to go on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Time for a pause now in this edition of the interview with Hugh Hewitt. I want to remind you that our sponsor is andrewandtodd.com. They're with Sierra Pacific. They lend you money to refinance your house or buy a home or help your son or daughter become investors in real estate by becoming a non-occupying co-borrower. They help senior citizens with reverse mortgage. They help veterans with no money down mortgages. They help you refinance. So if you need to get money out of your house or you need a whole new house, go to andrewandtodd.com or call them at 888-888-1172. Now back to this edition of Hugh Hewitt and the interview. 
Morning, Glory and Grace America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening today. Special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. I taped it before I left on my European vacation. I'll be back in a couple of days. Uh, thanks to all the guest hosts who've been sitting in for me. The conversation is with Daniel Silva, uh, extraordinarily successful uh, uh, novelist of the espionage genre. His most recent book, Moscow Rules, in bookstores everywhere. Bestseller. By the time I get back, I'm sure it's going to be a top, the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, and you're on one of these killer promotion tours. I, I, I guess you have to do 33 stops on this book tour, Daniel Silva? I'm holding in my hand a special shirt that we made up for the tour. And it looks like, like one of those old Rolling Stones tour shirts, you know, the baseball sleeves with the, with all the cities on the back. Um, it's, uh, how I spent my summer vacation. It's, it is 33 stops and, um, it's hard, but it gives me a chance to, to, go out and 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 spend some time with uh, my readers and I just love it and uh, so it's um, I I get to uh, really see the state of the the US airline industry oh my gosh <laughs> in, a, in a very personal way because I fly every morning basically I can't ima- I've done it for a week at a time I just can't imagine it but I it's 33 days of the same questions in essence but it's it's um I actually, I really do enjoy it. All right, it's 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 the travel and the time away from my family that's that's the hard part. Before we dive into the the novels themselves, I want to ask one question that touches them all. Because Gabriel Alon is a restorer of art, you always have some artist or art piece at the center of the book. Sometimes it's Bellini, it's been Rubens, it's uh, in the current book, Mary Cassette. How do you pick them? Um, I pick them very carefully in terms of I want. Imagery that um, reinforces something in the novel itself. Um, obviously, in, in the new book, um, it, there's a painting called Two Children on a Beach by Mary Cassatt. Um, and those two children on a beach, without giving anything away, play a very important sure. um, uh, role in the outcome of the story. Um, if memory serves, uh, the, the Rubens was to, uh, Daniel in the lion's den that he right. he restored. Uh, you made up a Van Gogh. Uh, I I I made up a a a painting um, that, that was based on 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 the the facts. Uh, Marguerite Gachet. I, I created an an additional painting of Marguerite Gachet that that uh, Vincent made. Uh, near the end of his life. And so all, so when you start at the book, do you, do you look around for someone whose life or drama will interest you, or do you look for a painting that will fit into the plot? Um, sometimes it's, it's just when he was working in, in Venice, for example, um, it was just picking something that David and I wanted to restore, basically. <laughs> uh, gosh, I like that Bellini. Let's do that one. Um, and then, you know, where, where, the, where the paintings are really part of the plot, um, as they were in The Messenger and, uh, and in this book, um, that, that I, I want something, I want to create an image in the, in the reader's mind on, on the canvas and that, that also has um, something that, that to do with the, with the plot. There's also a fascinating aspect here, uh, the world of art dealing, which has been in all of the books, but mostly in the Secret Service and the current one in, in the attempt to, for a collector to get the Cassatt or for a collector to get the Van Gogh and right. the middlemen and the money. They might not like your work too much because they don't <laughs> they come off. They love the work. They do? And the, and the uh, um, yes, I actually um, was uh, the 
given a, a, a big book party a couple of years ago in, in New York by dealers and, and, and uh, uh, curators and things. And the, the, Gabriel is very, very well known within the, the, the restoration and the art community. Um, Interesting. He, uh, Did you have any idea how vast it was when you began down this road? <laughs> I, I really didn't. And uh, but a couple of years ago, what a very um, famous art restorer was giving a lecture at the at the Tate Gallery in London and quoted from Gabriel Alon in the, the lecture. That's when I knew that Gabriel had really uh, come to life. All right, let's go back to the start. And I want to do sort of a forced march to the previous seven and spend a lot of time on Moscow Rules. The okay. Kill Artist is the first Alon book. How different is the Alon of 2000 when it comes out from the Alon of this summer in terms of the full nature of the character and its availability to you? Much different. Um, he's, he... At that point, he had fled um, his old service, was was living in isolation, basically in, in uh, Cornwall, in in the far southwest of England. Um, he was tending to his wife, who was in a, a British mental institution uh, because of the wounds and the and the psychological psychiatric trauma that she had suffered, and he was a a. Uh, surly, um, rather broken figure who was hauled out of the dustbin um, to uh, track down uh, the man who destroyed his family. And um, so he has he has grown up and changed um, uh, then. He was really a lone wolf, very shy, uh, uh, difficult personality, not a guy that you'd really want to hang around. Arafat is in that book. As historical personages appear through all of them, yeah. um, it's sort of dangerous to do that. How do you how do you manage sort of that you're writing in real time with real characters? Obviously, Arafat died thereafter, but not during the course of the book. He he appears in two novels, um, and the first book was written uh, during the period uh, at the end of the Clinton administration, where we were really having to go at peacemaking and. and President Clinton uh, tried but failed to bring the parties together at Camp David, and and uh, this novel talk is uh, the plot of it is that a a Palestinian rejectionist group is going to try to torpedo the process by carrying out um, acts of terrorism on European and American soil, and and you know you have to make a decision: do I want to create a fictitious Palestinian leader, or do I, I want to go with the real thing? I mean, when you look at the Palestinian people. Um, Arafat, for warts and all, is the leader or, or was the leader of the Palestinian people. He was Palestinian nationalism personified. And to, to try to create a fictitious person, a fictitious Arafat, was just, I just didn't think Couldn't I would be, be able to do it. Second book is The English Assassin. It's in Switzerland. You mentioned it earlier in our program. You're digging into the Holocaust, into their horrible past, banking the Nazis. But you also have a violinist in here, uh, kind of a one of the characters is a great but, but fractured talent. So you had to learn a couple. You had to learn banking, and you had to learn violin music. How long does that take you to do? <laughs> a great question. And, and um, uh, the I... I Worked very hard on the on the uh, musical aspects of that plot. Spent a lot of time with a with a very gifted violinist and uh -huh. just tried to to learn how she thinks. Just the way I, I learned how Gabriel would think as a restorer. Just just to try to um, to get inside the head of, of a of a of a gifted violinist um, with a 
disturbing, violent past. And so I had to do a lot of research on it. Um, and it, it was uh, actually a very successful character. And, and sure. um, so you I, had I a thought violinist. about bringing her back, actually. Oh. And uh, Gabriel kind of had to move on in his life. <laughs> that's interesting because you did use a violinist, though, to sit down and kind of – that's fascinating. You bet. All right. The yeah. Confessor is book number three. The the artist at the center of it is Bellini. The, uh, the bad guy is the leopard. But this time we've got Vatican. It's the first Vatican thing. And, you know, after the Da Vinci Code, a lot of people are going to be suspicious of – uh, of twisting the Vatican around, but you're very sympathetic. I understand now why uh, you grew up Catholic, mm-hmm. but uh, you still have the crux vera in here, et cetera. Mm-hmm. What's your attitude towards the Vatican? Um, well, let's just separate that out from what the what this story was about, and that was um, the level of complicity of the of the of the Roman Catholic Church in the in the Holocaust and uh, the failure. Of, of Pope Pius XII to speak out more forcefully um, in, in condemnation of the Holocaust, and, and um, this this book um, uh, explores the possibility of, of was there some sort of, of pact between uh, the Germans and elements of the Roman Catholic Church to buy the Pope's silence, and that's what the, that's what the story is about. Um, but uh, as I said. In the first hour, I am, I am, you know, I'm not some Vatican hater, um, well, clearly or, not. or, or, or Vatican, uh, conspiratorialist, actually. Um, I'm fascinated by the place. I have read deeply of the, of the history of the church and the Vatican. I, I, funny, a couple summers ago, I took a private tour of the Vatican and, and its museums with the chief art historian. And near the end of the tour, he says, you know, I have taken a lot of people through this place. You know more about the Vatican than anyone I have ever brought in here. And, cause I, I, and then I finally confessed who I was and, and why I, I, I had spent so much time studying the Vatican. But um, so that was a, that was that dealt with a specific aspect of the, of the Vatican's past that that um, I caught a lot of flack for from some quarters. But I think it was a fair book. Three down, five to go. Don't go anywhere. Daniel Silva is my guest on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Twenty one minutes after the hour, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am. An extended conversation with Daniel Silva, author of Moscow Rules, his brand new book, uh, continuing forward the saga of Gabriel Alon. It began with the English patient. We're on book number four, Death in Vienna. And on this aspect, it's really about survivors. There's a lot of Holocaust history here. And uh, do you do survivors talk to you much about how they and their experience are depicted in the Elan books? Uh, uh, absolutely. Every single time I go to uh, uh, an, an event or, or I make lots of speeches and appearances that at synagogues and Jewish community centers around the country. And, and uh, look, Death in Vienna is probably my personal favorite. And and um, if, if anyone who's read the book knows that the heart of the novel is a, a fictitious testimony um, that I wrote concerning Gabriel's the experiences of Gabriel's mother dur- during the death march from Auschwitz and her and, tormentor and and her tormentor and and um, uh, writing it left me a personal wreck um, and I had nightmares for weeks afterwards but it was it remains um, I, I think the thing that I'm most proud of and I, a lot of work went into it I mean I went to Yad Vashem and read the real things in Yiddish written in the old uh, parchment paper that that you know these um, 
when uh, after the state of Israel was founded, it, uh, you know, people streamed in and gave these testimonies quietly to uh, uh, to the record keepers, and and it uh, it, it just is remains my personal favorite book. Yeah, the service it does uh, pay a little compliment here. It's extraordinary, given that we live in sort of an era of casual Holocaust denial, where you get these fanatics like Ahmed Dinejad, and it's become so routine. They are, in fact, accomplishing their purpose well, by Holocaust diminishing denial it. denial was the spine of that novel, yep. um, that um, the bad guy, uh, for lack of a better word, the um, the Nazi war criminal that Gabriel was trying to bring to justice, his job was to erase the evidence of the Holocaust to the extent possible in the in the German occupied lands in, uh, in the East. Um, and you know what? They 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 succeeded in, the, in to a large degree when 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 the Poles and the Russians went to look for Treblinka, they could barely find the place. And um, uh, if you've ever been there, as I have, it's it's tucked away in the woods. They did a good job trying to clean up the uh, all the evidence, and and it, it, they kind of made it disappear for a while. Let's move forward to Prince of Fire. I could spend the whole time on Death in Vienna because I think it is very very powerful. But I want to give people a taste of each of those here. The Israeli embassy in Rome is bombed. The bomber is is a French archaeologist. The Rubens is at the center of this. But really, I think it's about 30 years of war between Palestinians and Israelis. It is, and it is. I think what impacted it most was my uh, personal <laughs> personal anger at at uh, Palestinian leadership for for failing to uh take advantage of the of the opportunity to create a, a, a state and 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 live peacefully and instead they allowed uh Hamas and, and other Palestinian militants to uh bomb the daylights out of the Israelis for for uh, a period of a couple of years there after the collapse of of, of Camp David and the, the second intifada uh, having visited Israel during that time, and to you know, uh, to hear the stories of the bombs going off, and and uh, you know, having friends who had to take their children out of the country because they couldn't they couldn't stand the stress anymore, um, and so that was really the backdrop of that novel, and it tells the um, the struggle and from over a period of, an, of a number of years um, and, and the terrible impact that it's had. The Messenger comes next, and, and fascinating about this is you really have begun to update the novels with current current controversies. You're Saudi billionaire. Yep. Uh, you've got the Vatican involved. By the way, is Pope Paul VII more like Benedict or more like John Paul II in your uh, view? He is more actually like, uh, if I were to pick a pope, he's probably more like John XXIII, actually. Um, he is He is... He, um, or maybe even, maybe even John Paul the First. He's he's traditionalist, but what has um, some liberal inclinations. Uh, but Donati is not at all. Donati, like Donati. John Paul the, he's the Donati Monsignor is, who's running everything. He's a tough guy. Yeah. Um, uh, so, he's the Pope's man in black, and and every Pope needs one. But uh, but the book was. Um, um, my first attempt, if you'll, if you'll look at the arc there, you'll see that after 9-11, I wrote three books that had absolutely nothing to do with terrorism. I just didn't want to write about it. Um, I, I was impacted personally by it and, and uh, wasn't interested in writing about it until finally with, the, with 
Prince of Fire, I crept up to a little bit, writing from the Israeli point of view and Israeli context. Um, but The Messenger is the first time that, that I actually uh, walked up to global jihadism. Um, and coincidentally, it was, it was um, by far my, my biggest selling book to date uh, at that point. Um, uh, and it was a pretty good book, actually. Oh, it's very good. The Secret Servant comes next, the, the one most recent before Moscow rules. And interesting here, with Bentecourt just freed, yep. a hostage is at the center of this. Yep. And the experience of being a hostage I think portrayed in a way very few novelists can. How did you try and figure that out? Who did you talk to? <laughs> well, I read as, um, as many um, descriptions of, of of it as I could, and and um, and I just made some very careful choices about um, um, how to portray the person in custody. I think that one mistake that that some writers or books have made is that. You just spend, you know, endure these long descriptions of life in captivity, and I felt that I wanted to avoid that and just keep them very, each one tense. And also, it was important to me that my captor fight back, <laughs> and she fights back, and every, she plays a role yeah. in her freedom every step of the way. Um, but the backdrop of that book is um, Western Europe and the threat of of Islam. Uh, violent Islam, I should say, um, extremist Islam um, emanating from Western Europe. Uh, and I, I, it's funny, when I finished the book tour for The Messenger, in the last couple of days of that book tour, um, the news broke that the British Secret Services had broken up the plot to bring down uh, the jetliners with liquid explosives. And I said, we are out of here. And, and I got to, on a plane and was on the ground in London uh, a couple of days later while the crime scene tape was still up around the suspects' houses out in, in East London. And, and um, that was really the the impetus, the creative juices that that, that brought that book to, to fruition. And there's an echo of it in Moscow Rules with the plot there, and we'll talk about that after the break. My guest is Daniel Silva. I've given you sort of the... the thumbnail introduction to uh, the seven preceding books. Now we dive into Moscow rules when we come back. What is going on in Russia? What is Daniel Silva trying to tell us in the middle of a, a very good yarn about Gabriel Halon and Moscow rules? We'll be right back on the Hugh Hewitt Show. 34 minutes after the Americans, Hugh Hewitt with Daniel Silva. A magnificent new book, Moscow Rules, shooting up the best-selling charts around the United States, I'm certain. And uh, we're back into Russia. And uh, Daniel Silva, I this is what I used to do. This is what I read. This was my professional life. I had to know the Soviets. I had to read things like Vladimir Bukovsky to build a castle. It was part of my life. You brought it back. Uh, it, it's hard to do that. How much of the dissident literature, how much did you throw yourself into the Soviet era, the Stalin era, and the dissident era in getting ready for this? Um, a disclaimer. I, I thought that I was going to be a, the Moscow correspondent for United Press International. I studied Soviet foreign policy and Russian history at school. Um, this was what I was all about as a as a college student. And when I got my job at UPI, I was going to be I was being groomed uh, to go to Moscow. And as as fate would have it, I ended up in the Middle East instead. Um, maybe that wasn't such a bad thing because a few years later, uh, Soviet Union ceased to exist. But you know, I would I have been waiting to do this book for a very long time, and so. Um, but in preparation for writing it, while I was writing it, I reread 
Soviet history, 20th century history from the beginning, read all the classics, um, and then focused heavily, obviously, on on the Yeltsin and, and Putin years, and and particularly the last few years of the of the, of the, uh, the reign of Putin, to to and and try to get an accurate picture of what Russia is like right now. Did you talk to Jeffrey Sachs? Do you know him? I don't know him, and I did not speak. Okay, it's interesting because his big theory is the one that's blown up in our hands here in terms of uh, shock therapy and what happens in the aftermath. But we'll come back to that. In terms of, of getting ready for covering Stalin, the House on the Embankment, the Lubyanka, all that kind of stuff, had was that already in your bag of tricks when you started this, or did you have to go back and, and start taking the copious notes and re-remember it? It was in my bag of tricks, but I, I reread uh, everything. And and look, when I when I'm working on a novel, I will read a hundred books on, on the subject. I mean, I just throw myself body and soul into into what I'm working on. Craftsman's question. Uh, do you allow that reading to divert you from the writing in the morning? Is that part of it, or do you try and keep those two things separate? No, the the, uh, the reading is, uh, is my nighttime activity. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Uh, yeah. uh, do you happen to have read Tim Weiner's Legacy of Ashes? Uh, I did. It, it made the Soviets accomplished in this area where the Americans have not been so good when it comes to spying. How much? I, I, I believe that, but I, I was told by people in the know that, that I mean, Wiener's point was, Wiener or Weiner, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, was that we were able to actually recruit very, very few um, really good spies in in, in Soviet Union, and and I'm not quite sure that's that's the case. I yeah, his theory is they ran circles around us. All they the probably did, um, and they were much more ruthless, and they're willing to play by completely different rules than we were, uh, and still are. I mean, I mean, let us let us speak frankly about something. I, I believe that the Russian services had a hand in the in the murder of Alexander Litvinenko in London. Right, you make that okay. clear. Um, we are have dedicated uh, a great deal of our security apparatus to making sure that that weapons of mass destruction and and chemicals and biological weapons cannot be get got into the hands of terrorists and used against us. These guys transported perhaps the most lethal substance on the planet, polonium two ten, across Europe, spread it all around London, and committed an act of in effect nuclear murder in the heart of the British capital. Um, these are the kinds of people um, that are still running the Russian services. Uh, the, during the Cold War, they referred to us as the main enemy, as you know. They still refer to us as the main adversary. Uh, they changed it slightly, but but they still have um, this this. Uh, Cold War outlook in, in terms of the way they go about their business. And they are, as you say repeatedly, KGB with better clothes. What does Moscow rules refer to? Page 77. Gabriel stood in line for 20 minutes before finally being processed with Soviet warmth by a flaxen-haired woman who made no attempt to conceal her loathing of him. <laughs> Refusing an indifferent offer of assistance from the bellman, he carried his own bag to the room. He didn't bother searching it. He was playing by the Moscow rules now. Assume every room is bugged and every telephone call monitored. Assume every person you encounter is under opposition control and don't look back you are never completely alone you had to write those down for the first time uh i did um and um the i i learned through my research that that, that this, the cia has never bothered they 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 
feed the Moscow rules into their spies intravenously. They're, they're case officers, I should say, but they've actually never bothered to write them down. They're in print now in the new book, Moscow Rules by Daniel Silva. I'll be right back with him. 24 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Getting close to the end of a magnificent conversation with Daniel Silva, author of Moscow Rules, his brand new book in the Gabriel Lawn series out in bookstores now available at Amazon.com. I've linked it. It's available at DanielSilvaBooks.com as well. Uh, Moscow Rules has a couple of unlikely heroes, including uh, reporters for a, a dissident magazine. It reminds me of Novi Mir, et cetera, in those years. But you write in the afterwards, 47 reporters, editors, cameramen, and photographers have been killed in Russia since the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, clearly a dangerous hobby or, or, or profession to have in the new Russia. Um, I think it memory serves 12 after Putin has come to power. Um, and, you know, these are not just people who are killed in war zones. I mean, these are people who were the target of professional hits uh, on a political sky being the most famous. Um, the book was inspired to some degree by the murder, a, a lesser known death that people don't uh, hear in the, in, the, in the West, at least, with a guy named Ivan Safranov, who was investigating a secret missile deal between um, Russia and some Middle Eastern country, uh, perhaps Syria, and the authorities were were quite irked at him. Um, and uh, although it's never been proven, that his colleagues think that he was he was murdered because he was about to to um, reveal the, this this secret deal. Um, he lived on the third floor of a. Moscow apartment building. He fell from the fifth floor of that building. Uh, yeah, when he was living on the third, as you point yeah. out. Now, l- let me ask you, you've got your, your bad guy, Ivan Karkov, say in this book on page 235 about democracy. Democracy is fine for those who wish to be democratic, but there are some countries that simply don't want democracy. Right. I'm glad you had a thug say that because I reject it. But, but did you purposely have a thug say it as opposed to believing it in that, you know, basically we should just get used to a czarist Russia? Um well, I think that Ivan's words are could have been spoken by Vladimir Putin himself. I mean, um, he they have clearly gone their own way. way. They call it managed democracy or sovereign democracy, um, but there's little democratic about it. I mean, the the opposition parties, such that they are, are basically puppets and, and useful idiots, as Lenin would say. There is no free press. There is no independent judiciary. There is no um, legitimate um, means for political opposition. I mean, we know what, what a democracy is. It is it is separation of powers. It is a free and unshackled press. Um, it is fair courts where, where people can go in and, and, and get a fair hearing. Um, uh, uh, none of these exist in Russia. Um, as I write in the book, um, that Russia has lurched from the ideology of Lenin to the ideology of Mussolini in a period of about 12 years. Russia is, in my opinion, a fascist country. Now, why did, in your opinion, studying this, not all of the full Soviet Union fall? I just was listening to BBC podcast. Bulgaria has fallen back into the orbit. It's going fascist again. But not Poland. Is it because of the... The Catholic roots of some and the, the the separate spheres that survived vis-a-vis, there just wasn't any. The Soviets destroyed everything. There was no third way, even though the Orthodox Church endured. There just wasn't any training. Yeah, I think that you can't underestimate the um, the influence of Orthodoxy on the course of Russian history or the or the influence of Catholicism on Polish history. And I do think that, that 
the fact that um, Poland is so devoutly Catholic, and anyone of Polish descent knows that, or anyone who's visited Poland, you know, you, you can't drive more than a, a handful of miles down any country road without coming on a, uh, a lovely shrine to the to the Madonna. I mean, it is a devoutly Catholic place, and that I think that that has probably um, played some role in in, in Poland's uh, current situation. But um, you know, they are more anchored to the to the uh, to Western Europe than, than some of the weaker uh, satellites close to to Russia. And this is part of Russia's plan. They they want their empire back. They they are uh, ticked off that that NATO was extended to their their borders um, after the, uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, and they they want to undo that uh, to the extent possible, and and you know look for more Russian projection of power and more Russian activism. Um, in the Caucasus and and the Baltics, um, Estonia is in their sights. What is their what do you understand their their game plan to be? In the old days, we knew what the Soviets wanted right. because they had an ideology that told us. But fascists are more difficult to figure out. What do you think it is? Um, well, clearly they want to be. Um, they do not like the unipolar world of the of the post Cold War. They want it to be bipolar again. They want to be. Um, they want to be a member of the Western Club, meaning the G8 and some of the other institutions, but they also want to challenge it um, and to and to be a a, uh, a counterweight to uh, the United States and the world. Um, to that end, I mean, they are clearly seeking to exploit the unpopularity of the United States in the Islamic world by, uh, you know holding themselves up as as the, the true defender of of, of Islam uh, they're they're selling weapons to the Syrians like crazy they are selling weapons uh to the Iranians i mean if we talked earlier about about a possible strike on the Iranian nuclear facilities if that ever happens god forbid um the Iranians will defend those facilities with weapons that were sold to them by the Russians so thank you, Vladimir Putin. When you say God forbid, um, yeah, I, I I I hope it doesn't come to this. I mean, I I really I don't know where. Would you, you ever let them have nukes, though, Daniel? No, Sol? I I I I don't want them to have nuclear weapons. Um, and um, yeah, that's what yeah. I I am not convinced that that we the, the 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 best of my knowledge from what I've been told by the experts is that we can at best delay the Iranians. And maybe that's not a bad thing. I mean, um, but you have to accept that, that the, that the world that's going to come out of that, 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 that post-attack world is going to be pretty, pretty uncertain. Oh, for a absolutely. While. Second order. And, arms. and, yeah. and look out for, uh, you know, $250, uh, oil. I'll be right back. Final segment coming up with Daniel Silva, author of Moscow Rules, fantastic thriller, and we return to the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. I hope you've enjoyed as much as I have this extended conversation with Daniel Silva, author of Moscow Rules, his most recent of eight books concerning Gabriel Alone. All of them are recommended to you. All of them available at DanielSilvaBooks.com. Moscow Rules, of course, now in uh, in fine bookstores, airports, from available from Amazon.com. I want to conclude because uh, while you center these books, uh, Daniel Silva, on Israel and Alon, there's a lot of looking at America in it. And uh, you have one line on page 135 of Moscow Rules, which I wrote down. The Americans love to monitor problems but do nothing about them. Uh, generally speaking, is that your view of how we've been carrying on ourselves for the last uh, 10 years in the war on terror? Well, first of all, 
sometimes my characters will say things <laughs> that I don't necessarily. I mean, you know, Thomas Harris writes about a guy who likes to eat people, but I don't think that anyone has ever asked Thomas Harris if he likes you know, <laughs> kidneys or livers or human brains. And so, that, what these characters are are. Israeli intelligence officers, and they. One thing I have learned from spending time with them is that they are acerbic, they are funny as hell, they are. Um, they they have a point of view, and and my characters uh, sometimes talk like them, and so everything that that Gabriel Alon says or Ari Shamron says. This is Shamron. Me. Yeah. Um, this is Shamron. But what do you think of his a, assessment then? What, what is my what, assessment? Uh, what is your assessment of Shamron's assessment that the Americans love to monitor problems but do nothing about them? <laughs> I, I think that that's fair. I mean, we've been talking a lot about the need to diversify our energy supplies in, in here in the United States. And, boy, we've been having this conversation since I was a pretty young kid. Yep. And, and um, we're still driving our gasoline cars and still importing, I don't know, how many uh, million barrels a day from Saudi Arabia. And and now the Russians have entered the oil market, and and they have studied the Saudi model. Believe me, yeah. Um, and they know that they can get away with. Last it. question though, you, you you obviously you you know about this stuff. You think about it. You're still living in Washington D.C., which is a big target on it. So you must have some degree of confidence in our and our allies' abilities to hold off the world. <laughs> I I I personally um, question sometimes my why I live in Washington D.C. and I do talk to people and and say you know is it safe to live here because everything that we have learned from Al Qaeda tells us that they come back to the targets that they missed and clearly the targets that they missed on 9-11 were targets in Washington and so um, if they live up to their past behavior they will try to come back to either the, the Capitol or the White House in my opinion um, but we we do have a we have been working this problem very hard, obviously, for a number of years, um, and I think that we're we're pretty safe right now. But it, um, I hope it stays. All right, Daniel Silva, a real pleasure. Thanks for spending the time with us. Good luck on your your marathon book tour. Moscow rules available out there, America. You'll love it. Talk to you when I get back on the next Hugh Hewitt show. That concludes today's episode of the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. Andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888 You'll be glad you did, and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview.